hello, church. Today we are beginning our look at Paul and his work and his writings that are included in the New Testament. Before we jump into any of the letters in particular, which we certainly will do, I want to spend some time talking a little bit about who Paul is. Today we're going to talk a little bit about his background, the overall purpose of his mission, how he went about it, um, what his churches looked like a little bit, so we can get a good sort of overall glimpse of who this man was and we have a good background to begin to understand what it was he was trying to do and what it was that he was trying to accomplish as he went about writing these letters that we have in our New Testament. When it comes to Paul and his history and his life, there is much that we do have because we have stories included in Acts as well as details in his own letters. But there's a lot also that we don't know. And so I want to focus today on what we can know for certain and what we can be reasonably sure of and shy away from unnecessary speculation. Most scholars think Paul was born in about 3 AD, so that puts him about five or six years younger than Jesus. And we're told in Acts that he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus had by that time surpassed both Athens and Alexandria as a seat of learning. And so it was well known for its philosophy, its rhetoric, um, and it become an academic center. And as Paul grew up, he would have picked up on those skills, whether or not he was formally educated. We know from his writing certainly that he was an adept theologian, philosopher. He has advanced skills in rhetoric in the way that he writes and he argues and puts forth his arguments in his letters. These are skills that he had picked up. So he certainly had spent some time learning, whether formally or just in the marketplace, how to go about doing this. He also learned a trade, presumably from his father. We have interpreted this as tent making, although the word behind it is a little less specific. It could be something like a leather maker or leather worker. Um, but the point is that he was an artisan. He could work with his hands. He made things, and we know that he used that skill during his mission work in order to support himself. Paul was part of a diaspora community. We've used that term before, but the diaspora is the dispersion, the scattering, as foreign powers had pressed in on Israel in the past. As things got tense and dangerous, people scattered. And so there were Jewish communities that had popped up all over the area, and Tarsus was one of the places in which that had happened. And from what we're told about Paul, uh, the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day, we know that his family was part of a relatively devout Jewish community in Tarsus. We can assume that he spent some time there learning, as we've said before, based on the way that he speaks and writes. Uh, the, the Greek that's present in his letters is much more advanced than that, say, of John or some of the other New Testament writers who we know are less learned. We also know, as Acts tells us, that he spent time studying under Gamaliel, who was one of the most well-known rabbis in Jerusalem. So it stands to reason that he spent time studying and learning in Tarsus and then also time in Jerusalem. We certainly can't say how much time he spent in either of those areas learning, um, but we can say, of course, that he has learned from both of those environments, his, his hometown of Tarsus, but then also his time spent as a Talmudim, as a disciple, becoming a Pharisee under Gamaliel. As far as his class, his socioeconomic class, Paul would have fit into what is known as the artisan class. That was the working class. Within the Greco-Roman culture, there was a well-established class system. You had, of course, the emperor and then those right below them, the rich, the wealthy, the elites. Um, you had the politicians who were wealthy landowners that decided to take part in politics. He also had the equestrian class, which was equally as wealthy. They were landed. They, they owned land. It was on their land that much of the artisan class would work and labor. The workers would work their fields, uh, but they, they chose not to be part of the political class. 
Uh, and then below them started the working classes and the artisan class was the bulk of that. And they were the ones who were working the fields. In the case of Paul and his family and, and others like him, they were the ones manning the shops in the town, making things. So Paul, of course, made tents, we think, or as I said earlier, some sort of leather product or goods, some hand, handmade thing, um, a skill that he made. But they were not wealthy. They did not own land. Um, they were definitely not the upper class. They were definitely this sort of blue-collar working class would be a, a good way to describe them in today's terms. As we meet Paul in Acts and then as we read Paul describe himself as he, as he was before his encounter with Jesus, we learn that he was a Pharisee. In fact, he says that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. So he was at the top of the class, at the top of the game. He was the prodigy, the rising star within the Pharisee system. The Pharisees, of course, were legalistic. In fact, Jesus speaks against them repeatedly for that reality. But our understanding has gone wrong in ascribing the motivation for that. So for a long time, we thought that they were trying to seek power, become the ruling class, uh, sort of take over for the Sadducees, uh, take over the position of the Sadducees as far as the ones who were uh, the loudest voice within the movement. In reality, what the Pharisees sought to do was to purify the nation. They thought of themselves as a prophetic voice within Judaism. They were calling people back to the law. They thought if they, they being Israel, lived strictly enough, uh, lived according to Torah, that their right behavior, their right attitudes, their right relationship with God would prepare the way for the Messiah. They were a movement that was trying to prepare the way and make the conditions right within Israel so that the Messiah could come. So their motivation was right. It was the legalism and the strict nature of their Torah application, which went too far. And that was why Jesus came and spoke against them and why they butted up against Jesus so often, because of course, Jesus was much more about love and proper application of love and freedom, Christian freedom, and writing laws on hearts rather than creating these legalistic systems that people must be forced into. It was because of that strict legalism and desire for purity that Jesus ran afoul of the Pharisees and so, of course, did the church as they followed in his footsteps. The most alarming thing about the church for the Pharisees was the fact that they ascribed the glory, the honor, the divine status of Yahweh to this man, Jesus. As Christians, we understand that. We understand why, because Jesus was, in fact, God himself. But for a Pharisee who did not believe that, you can see why they would have been immediately deemed heretical and they would be a threat. They would need to be eradicated from the church. If you are a Pharisee trying to purify the nation of Israel, well, you certainly can't let the Christian sect continue and grow in influence because then you have people essentially breaking the commandments, ascribing their glory and honor that do God to a man. And that is, of course, heresy. And so, as a result, Paul sets out to eradicate the Christians. We see him first in Acts as a bystander as Stephen is stoned to death. We're told that he approves of that. And we know from Paul's letters that he spent time persecuting the church in and around Jerusalem. At some point, Paul decides that he needs to take his persecution on the road. The church has spread throughout the area as a result of a, a number of different factors, not least of which was the persecution. And so he gets marching orders from the high priest to head north to Damascus to hunt the Christians there. It's on this road, of course, that he has his now famous conversion experience, the Damascus Road experience, in which Jesus appears to him and asks him why he is persecuting his church, his, being Jesus' his church. 
it was this moment where Paul recognizes the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. So it is the confrontation that he has with Jesus. Jesus confronts him on this road. And it is this moment which Paul says he sees the resurrected, the true body embodied living Christ, not just a ghost. It's not just a spirit, but he has this moment with the true Christ resurrected. And this changes everything for Paul. And one of the ways in which our understanding of Paul has changed beyond just the understanding of what a Pharisee was is the way in which we see this conversion. For a long time, it was thought that it was this moment in which Jesus comes to Paul, that Paul turns his back, turns away from Judaism, and turns towards this new thing called Christianity. We know now that the conversion is not that. The conversion, of course, is a flipping or a turning away from the persecution of the church, away from a rejection of Jesus to an acceptance of Jesus. But that acceptance of Jesus is an accepting of Israel's Messiah. So Paul doesn't turn his back on Judaism. Paul completely reorients Judaism around Jesus. On the heels of his experience with Jesus, he spends a brief moment in Damascus until he gets run out, and he, then he heads south to Arabia. And the timeline gets a little fuzzy in here, but we can be relatively certain that he spends about three years there. Three years is an important period of time. And of course, Jesus spends three years with his disciples. Here, Paul is spending three years doing something, exactly what we don't know, we're not told. But three years, we also know, is a Torah cycle. So the Torah was broken up such that in a three-year period, you would move through the whole book. We have this actually in our lectionary. We don't use the lectionary at a manual, but many churches do. It is a three-year cycle of scripture. So every three years, you go back through the entire book of the Bible and work your way through scripture. And it's set up so that every three years, you cycle through and have gone through the entire Bible. This Torah cycle worked the same way. And by virtue of the fact that we're told that Paul spends three years in Arabia, we can assume that he's spending that three-year period working back through the Torah, working back through the theology of the Old Testament, his understanding of what was going on there, and reworking it and re-understanding re it, reinterpreting it in light of Jesus, in light of his new knowledge that Jesus is the risen Messiah. Given the fact that the Messiah has come, and has come in the way that he did as, as a peasant who was crucified, what does that mean and how do we look back on the Old Testament and understand that? And so the conversion then is not a leaving behind of Torah and Israel's story, it is a re-understanding of that story in light of Jesus. And much of Paul's writing in his letters is explaining that very thing, explaining not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, the, ent the entire story and how Israel, particularly he as a Pharisee, had missed it and was not expecting Jesus that came. But given the fact that Jesus came, how then do we understand the Old Testament and, and what do we make sense of all this? So there was this three-year period that he spends in Arabia. Presumably, he's working through all of this and we can say that because we know when he comes back, he heads to Jerusalem to see Peter and James. Um, James, of course, who we talked about last week, the head of the church in Jerusalem, to make sure that his message is in line with the message of the church as a whole. 
he makes a particular point in Galatians that he's not seeking their authority, that his authority comes from God, but he is making sure that the way in which he's talking doesn't run afoul of the message that they had been given so that everything is consistent. And he gets that. He gets that uh, okay. He gets that seal of approval from Peter and James and the Jerusalem church. And then he goes on about his missionary journeys. From here, he sets out to build the Gentile church. And there's a period of about 10 or 15 years from about 33, which is where we date his conversion, to about 48 or the late 40s where he begins to write again and we have record in which we really don't know what Paul was doing. He was, of course, building the church, but how and and why and when and exactly where, we don't know for sure. We have a sketch of it, of course, in Acts. After his meeting in Jerusalem, he sets out to build the Gentile church. And it is at this point, for a while, things get a little sketchy, the record goes dark, and we have about a 10 to 15-year period, which is known as the tunnel period or the silent years. We have some details in Acts, but what we don't have is a timeline of exactly when it happened. So, we can't say for sure what was going on there, but we know, of course, that he's building the church. Uh, But exactly where and how and for how long he spent in different periods during that period, we don't know. But in the late 40s, he comes back on the scene in the form of the letters that we have in the church. The writings begin to show up, and some scholars will say Galatians is one of his first writings. Others will say Thessalonians is. Again, a lot of the dating when it comes to Pauline writings and his work is not a firm black and white a lot of it, we're, we're making assumptions based on what is being written about the time and the place, but we can't say for certain. In the end, however, the particular dating of exactly what year which letter was written um, and, and what happened in those tunnel years is not ultimately important. What we're left with, of course, is the record of his theology and his teaching to the churches, and that is what is important. So, it's perfectly fine that some of these dates are in question. As far as his missionary strategy, what he was sought to do, we can talk about it on a a micro level and a macro level. On a micro level, the small-scale day-to-day in in and outs of his ministry, Paul seems to be very open to spontaneity, very uh, open to the Spirit's prompting. He doesn't set plans, long-term plans. He has short-term plans. He's going to go to this church. He's going to stay a while, and he's going to go to that church or that city, and he's going to stay a while. In some places, he stays for several years. In some places, he stays for a matter of weeks or months, and then he gets run off. And so, in terms of a short-term strategy, he seems to be very fluid and very open. But on a macro level, he seems to have a specific plan. And that plan is that he travels from city to city. He spends time in the metropolitan areas. We have no record of him spending time in the rural areas. He also spends time in port cities. So, the places which he can travel by ship and move quickly from one to the other. We have one letter in the New Testament to the Colossian church. That's the church at Colossae. That was a church that he never went to. He actually didn't plant that church. That was planted out of one that he did. And so, His strategy of planting churches in these port cities, these metropolitan areas, and then allowing the church to spread the message from that point out, radiate out from that point into the rural areas and into the cities inland seems to have worked and worked well. Paul is often portrayed as a bit of an antisocial, cantankerous guy, maybe even just a little bit of a jerk. In Acts, we have a couple stories where he can't get along or has disagreements with his traveling partners and they have to split. But we do know as we sort of piece things together again, through his letters, when he talks about his traveling companions, that he had 
he had quite a few of them. He had a lot of mission partners that went along with him, that worked with him in these churches that he would he would send out or they would actually work alongside with him, travel with him, including many women. So we know with a good degree of certainty that he wasn't this isolationist, antisocial guy, that he did work with many different people over the course of his ministry uh, and that he he could actually get along with people. As he traveled with his missionary groups from city to city, he would often go to the synagogues and preach the gospel. But quickly, we know he would be run out. Uh, there were, of course, Jews who would listen and, and would accept the message. We know that his churches were made up of at least some Jews. But more often than not, he was kicked out and they would go to open spaces, public spaces. There was a practice in most Greco-Roman towns of having places in the marketplace um, in which teachers could step up onto a step or a pedestal and, and preach whatever they, they wanted to say. So Paul would take advantage of this. For example, we know in Athens, he did this. Um, and so there was space made within the public sphere, public spaces, for people to do such things. And Paul, of course, took advantage of that. The other thing we know is that he would go from home to home. And so he would find someone who was amenable to his message, uh, wanted to hear it or wanted to, or actually did believe, and then he would gather in their homes. And it was in these homes in which these churches were built. And so when we talk about what his churches looked like, we know that they had to be what we would consider today small churches. Archaeologists have excavated one site in which they found two apartments which were side by side, and they removed the center wall between them, the two of them to create a larger space for people to meet. And, and it would accommodate maybe 50 people. And so 50 would probably be the top end number. So these were small house churches that he was building. There were some cities that would have multiple churches, so multiple house churches meeting, but the churches as individual churches were what we would consider small churches. The makeup of these churches was diverse. I mentioned earlier that there were some Jews. Uh, they were mostly Gentile, we know, so there, there was a mix there. In Galatians, of course, he makes the point that, that in the kingdom there are neither Jew nor Gentile, so there's really no distinction. But the reason to make that is that there were, of course, both Jews and Gentiles that made up that church. We also know that men, women, and children participated. We know that they were married, single, divorced, widowed, you name it. Paul gathered everyone, regardless of their social status, regardless of their marriage status, regardless of their background, slave, freed, it didn't matter. All, all different types of people were being gathered into these churches. We also know that at least the Corinthian church and probably more of them were kind of wild affairs. In, in the Corinthians letter, we read Paul talking and addressing sort of the, the reality that sort of everybody gathered and the Holy Spirit was present and whatever was going to happen, happened. And we know, of course, that there were people speaking in tongues. There were different people at different points that would teach or give a word or worship or, or lead. And so it was not a situation in which you had one leader that came every week and taught. It was an active body that was really kind of wild and free, and that got them in trouble at times, of course, but it was it was an every member functioning sort of event. And that's important to remember as we talk about what the church should look like or did look like. There was loose leadership structure, and so there were um, deacons, and Paul will talk about the role of overseers, uh, which become bishops, and as the church develops over the centuries, those positions really take uh, on sort of formal roles in, in a more institutionalized 
environment. But in the early stages, these churches that Paul was planting, there was perhaps a host. So, in, in fact, some of these, this is one of the reasons we know women were in leadership because it was in their home and they became the default leaders of the church. The idea of formal church leadership looked very different in this environment than it does for us today. And it did even a couple hundred years after Paul. And because these were smaller groups meeting in homes, they became very close-knit groups. They were meeting frequently, in some cases every day, but certainly frequently they were meeting on Sundays to celebrate uh, the, Lord's, the Lord's meal, communion. This was a weekly occurrence for them. Um, and they were largely the, the lower class. They did, of course, have some of the upper class that participated and became part of the church. But by and large, the church was made up of the artisan and peasant classes. And so the message that Jesus brought, the message of the kingdom, the message of uh, freedom from oppression, that, that's a message that resonates with them. And so they're coming together with a largely common experience to celebrate the God that has done great things for them, um, being brought into the kingdom, anticipating the second coming and the day which everything will be set right. And they do this so often and they, they understand so at such a core level what it means for them that they, they can't help but become family. And, and that, that happens. And so we're dealing with these very close, tight-knit church families in which they become brothers and sisters. And Paul talks about that. He teaches about that. And we see that in all the early church writings and the way they talk and relate to each other, that that is a reality of the church that Paul creates. We have so many of Paul's letters because as he would plan a church, He'd spend, as I said before, a couple months to sometimes as many as two or three years in a place building a church, teaching them, getting them up and running, and then he would move on to the next town. But he didn't forget and just write them off, and so he would often write letters. He would receive letters. We know, for example, when he was in Ephesus, members of the Corinthian church would come and meet with him. Um, he would send envoys. Timothy, for example, he sent to the Ephesus church. Um, and so there was constant communication back and forth. The church at Philippi would send monetary resources to him to support him. And so there was this entire network of churches throughout the Mediterranean area that were communicating with one another and communicating back and forth with Paul. And it is that communication, the letters that we have as the record of Paul's theology, his teaching, his understanding, his instruction for his churches. There's much to be said. There, there has been much said and written about Paul and his work. What is particularly remarkable and, and what I would hope that we take out of who Paul was and sort of a general overview of his life is that he was a remarkable servant. Who he was before his conversion experience made him a prime candidate to be the messenger to the Gentiles. His upbringing in Tarsus, his education, his training in rhetoric, in philosophy, in Greek, and the way, the way that that culture communicates, coupled together with his training and his steeped heritage as a Jew, his training under Gamaliel as a Pharisee, his understanding of the Old Testament, the fact that he was both a Jew and a Roman citizen, which allowed him to move with a certain freedom throughout the area. All of these things came together to make him the perfect messenger, the perfect missionary for the Gentiles at this period. And of course, he responded. And I think what is remarkable is that we think about his, his conversion, what, what really did convert. Again, we said it wasn't a leaving of Judaism 
for Christianity, but rather a re-understanding of Judaism and what God had been doing from the beginning of time in light of who Jesus was, Paul was, prior to this Damascus Road experience, as we said, and he says, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the rock star, the rising Pharisee. He's the prodigy, the one that, for all intents and purposes, soon likely would have been a member of the Sanhedrin set up to, to become a very influential man in the world of Judaism. And so, the fact that he flipped, the fact that he threw all of that away in favor of shipwrecks, jail, beatings, whippings, ultimately his death, the fact that he gave up every bit of power and influence that he had within the Jewish system for a life of servitude at the bottom of suffering and persecution. He became the very person that he was persecuting and was persecuted in kind. That speaks volumes, and that's a strong reason why we would look at Paul and say just simply his life is a testament to the fact that Jesus is real. Much like the first apostles, they, they knew if it was fake, if they were making it up, if it was all a lie, they knew. If Paul's experience on the road wasn't true, he knew that. Why would he give it up? Why would the early church, the early church leaders who had been there with Jesus – who had either seen him resurrected or not. In many cases, religions and religious leaders use religion for power and influence. And we have seen that even within the church over and over and over again and, and see that continue today. What we have in the case of Paul and the other apostles is they claim a truth, but the claim causes them to lose all authority all power, all influence. And so, it is ex the exact opposite. In other words, there is absolutely no reason for these early church leaders, Paul in particular, to make the claims that he makes. He has everything to lose and nothing to gain, except, of course, for the truth. And so, while we can't say that this is hard and fast proof of the truth of the gospel, I have always found, and I would hope that you would as well, the witness of Paul, the reality that he did this, this, this conversion happened as very strong evidence and, and reason to think that what he saw, he actually saw, the claims that he made about Jesus, the claims that the early church makes are true. And I find comfort in that and I hope that you do as well. This story of Paul and his conversion is very much like the story of Thomas that we looked at when we talked about the Gospel of John. In that story, Thomas has doubts. He says he needs to touch to, to physically see and touch the scars on Jesus to believe that he has been resurrected. And then there's this moment where Jesus shows up and we remarked as we talked through that story that Thomas doesn't actually touch him, that what Thomas thought he needed in order to believe, when Jesus shows up, he no longer needs. The, the encounter with the risen Jesus, coming face to face with Jesus changed everything for him. And we see that same thing happen here with Paul. The moment that he comes in to relationship with the resurrected Jesus, the moment that Jesus confronts him on the Damascus Road, everything changes. He gives up everything. He puts himself on the underside of the equation, knowing that it is in becoming a servant of God, becoming one of the least of these, that he is to serve the kingdom, but that doing that is the truest thing that he can do, that his greatest accomplishment would not be becoming the Pharisee of Pharisees, would not be becoming a member of the Sanhedrin or an influential Jew, but rather 
an influential, persecuted, and ultimately martyred Christian. So as we approach Paul and his letters and his teaching, it's important to remember that for Paul, it all boils down to an experience. In fact, Raymond Brown, a scholar, has this to say about studying Paul and Paul's theology and his letters and his works. He says, our reflections on the scholarly study of Paul and his letters must be qualified by the underlying awareness that Paul would grind his teeth if anyone thought any of this was other than dross when compared with the experience of the all-encompassing love of Christ, the goal to which he had devoted every waking hour. As we come to the work of Paul, it can be daunting to try to interpret and understand what he's trying to say across all of his letters. It is easy to get lost in the weeds. Since the very beginning of the church, there have been debates that have raged over what exactly he's saying in different parts, how the different pieces fit together. Is he making universal claims or is he talking specifically to one church in one place in time? What Brown draws our attention to and what Paul ultimately would want us to understand is that in the midst of all of that, what he's trying to do is to drive us home to an experience and understanding of the resurrected Christ. All of his instruction for all of his churches are for the purpose of allowing that particular community and that place and time to come into a relationship as a family, as a unified body, as the body of Christ, to have an experience of God in the, in the midst of them. That is his purpose. That for, for Paul, that is what the church is. The church is the unified, fully functioning body of Christ. And so, as we reflect on the person, Paul, the man who he was, the background he had, the things that he tried to do at a, at a sort of macro level, may we understand that the purpose he had for the church, the purpose that God has for the church is to become a family, to become a unified body in which we all find our place, in which we all find purpose and meaning, acceptance and love that is all centered around and stemming from Jesus and God himself. So as we come to study his letters, his work over the coming weeks and months, may we allow his words to teach us and encourage us. But may we also allow his life and his example guide our path into a life that is directed by and completely sold out to Jesus Christ. Amen.